welcome to this edition of Talking HR with Lori and Lisa, where as always, our goal is to give you a real look at today's HR world through the sharing of experiences, knowledge, and inspiring people practices. I'm your host, Lisa Fuller. And I'm Lisa's co-host, Lori Rilkoff. I've wanted to have our today's guest on our podcast for some time now, so I'm very pleased we've been able to make it happen for Phil Eastwood to join us. I first saw Phil when I attended a BC Municipal Safety Association conference as an HR and safety director many years ago, and I attended one of his training sessions, and it left such an impression on me that I still consider it to be one of the most informative and entertaining safety training I've experienced. So, Phil, I just want to give a bit of your background for our listeners. Um, You're based in North Vancouver in BC. That's correct, we are. And you are one of uh, Canada's premier HR training facilitators, specializing in respectful workplace behavior, workplace violence prevention, and leadership. And you have a company? (laughs) Wonderful Italian name. (laughs) And now I look at it like Fiori. Um, (laughs) the Fiori group training Um, and you've been really focused on creating safer and happier workplaces really over with employers and HR managers for many years now and I know you've worked with the BC Ferry Services and have other clients such as um, BC Municipal Safety Association which is where I saw you many years ago and um, City of Port Coquitlam and Pan Pacific Vancouver and I'm sure there's been many others that you've brought your expertise to. So we're really thrilled to have you on our podcast today. And thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this uh, ever since you sent me the invitation. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity of sharing a perspective with you and your listeners. And I, you know, I've really enjoyed um, just prior to us uh, starting our recording today, you were giving mm-hmm. us a a bit of your background and connections with our topic of uh, psychological safety in the workplace, which is the focus of the podcast today. But I've always was really interested, um, you're a former London Bobby, who had a 35 year career in policing um, prior to your current role. Um, Can you tell us about that journey and what led you to your career today? Uh, I I can, thank you for the opportunity of doing that. And and it, it doesn't take, when we're delivering training in organizations, and I was just doing this uh, yesterday in Delta, um, I, I always talk about, you know, I, want, I want to share with the audience why a retired police officer is standing in front of them talking about the importance of respect in the workplace in that particular case. And it has everything to do with when I was growing up as a, as a kid in the south of England, uh, where I'd never met a, a bully until I went to high school. And this one boy um, sort of ruled my the next four years of, of my um, of my high school career, and it wasn't just me he picked on, but he picked on everyone. The, the school failed at providing a safe environment. I think the teachers were afraid of him, and and in the rooms where he sat behind me, which was for the first two years every single class, I was terrified of him and because he was violent, he was aggressive, he was demeaning, he was belittling. And when you're in an environment where you feel very unsafe all the time, and it was a, and of course it was a school, I had to go to school, I couldn't avoid going to school. So I was in this environment where I had to be around this one kid. Um, I was a, I was a shell of myself. 
in the in the last two years of high school, you get to pick your own classes. And so I deliberately picked classes where I knew he wouldn't be. So in those particular topics, which, by the way, happened to be sewing, cooking, music <laughs> and cricket, um, <laughs> Uh, because those were the four those were the four classes that he had no interest in. So I waited until I knew what his classes were, and then I picked every single class I could that where he wasn't in the room. And I got to be that the, the, the best version of myself in those places. So I realized very early on where there was fear, um, I didn't show up. Uh, and and that was as a result of my lived experience in, in terms of dealing with conflict. And where he wasn't, I got to excel. Um, I, I very quickly realized that uh, um, I, th I thought if I became a police officer, they would teach me how to deal with people that didn't treat me well. That was the sole reason I was interested in becoming a police officer. But when I eventually went to London to become a police officer, the very first thing that they said to me was, um, you, you might want a set of handcuffs to deal with bad guys, but we're not going to teach you how to use handcuffs. What we're going to teach you how to do, and, they, and this was their entire emphasis back then in the training, they're going to teach you how to listen to people really well. They're going to teach you how to speak to people really well. And most importantly, they said they're going to teach us how to treat people really, really well. And they said that if you can do those three things, you, you can learn how to listen to people well, to speak to people well, treat people well. You'll be surprised at how infrequently you actually need handcuffs. And of course, when I initially heard that, I was I was really upset because that was the whole reason that I'd signed up. But but the <laughs> but I, I learned very quickly in my policing career that it was about building relationships with people. And, and I did that in London for eight years in, in Notting Hill, primarily um, in West London. And then in, uh, in New Westminster, when I came to Canada and, and joined the local police department here in the lower mainland. So it is about so I've always been a huge proponent of relationship building. Uh, firstly, obviously, it was with the public outside of the police station. But as I grew in the organization, it became very much about the internal relationships with my colleagues. And, uh, and, and then as I grew as a supervisor and as a manager, I realized that there was a massive opportunity and responsibility that those people have to develop an environment where people to get to, to be the best version of themselves, not live in fear. That's that's fantastic. I love learning about your background and that translation of the relationship building into organizations and into leadership. Um, how have you seen changes maybe in in organizations that you're working with over the years in the area of um, creating more healthy and safer and happier workplaces? Um, maybe share a little bit for our listeners what you've seen in the organizations and maybe some of that transition to today. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, it's, I think for me, it's a, the gradual dawning of the understanding that as a supervisor, and bearing in mind that when I was going to the, through the supervisory growth period, but not only as a sergeant in London, but also here in, in, uh, in US Minister in Canada, the, there initially wasn't this there wasn't a, a sort of a lesson that I was given or by the way Phil now that you're in a supervisory role even though it may be for in a temporary role as you're acting um, you have this legal duty of care this legal uh, responsibility to provide a safe not only physically safe workplace but a psychologically safe workplace for your team and 
the, the people we meet these days in our training uh, business and consulting world, very, I wouldn't say very rarely, but there's, then there certainly is a, a, it needs to be a, a more vocal conversation about the importance of supervisors having that legal duty of care and what that looks like for them to, and how, and how they show up to provide an environment where people feel that they can have a voice or that they do have a voice, that their opinions matter. And so those psychologically safe environments are definitely set by the, the, the frontline supervisors, the managers, the leadership in the organization, and, and, and them getting it that they uh, have this, this massive, um, and some would say it's a responsibility. I say it's an opportunity to provide this, this, this uh, environment where people can come and, and be the, the very best versions of themselves. Because we, you know, we work with organizations you know, across the spectrum where there's, where there's definitely uh, an element of, of, um, of, of a lack of safety because um, where that, that's not understood and practiced. And certainly those that are, are, are stars um, as well, where everyone understands the, the responsibility of the leaders to, to show up and, and provide that environment. So I think that for us, the, the, the journey has been this, this uh, the, there needs to be a continuing conversation about that duty of care that supervisors and managers need to, need to demonstrate uh, in their work teams. So are there some practical ways that leaders can help to create psychological safety in their workplace? Um, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think there are just a couple of things. Uh, from, from my perspective, I, 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 I want to, I think, firstly, I think that those leaders um, or people that want to be a leader, because I mean, we have to start off somewhere, um, the need to sort of do a bit of a, a, a reflective look in the mirror and say, you know, how do they show up in the workplace? Do they, do they listen much more than they talk? Um, we, we, do, we do, in our sort of workshops, we, we do this very simple exercise where we ask people, um, especially in our leadership workshops, we talk about, okay, give me, the three, you know, give me three behaviors that your best boss demonstrated to you on a regular basis that put them in the category of your best boss, and then do the same with your worst boss. And, you know, we never talk about names, but just behaviors. And the, and the person, the, the behaviors that everyone writes about for their, from their best boss is that they took an interest in me, in me as a human being, that they listened to me, that they coached, that they mentored, that they wanted to create an environment where they, where, where they were encouraged to grow and, and develop themselves. Uh, and the worst boss behaviors were the complete opposite of that. So, so it, it comes down to that, those simple exercises that I heard, you know, that I was taught on, on day one of my policing career about 400 years ago, you know, uh, listening to people well, talking to people well and, and treating people well. And I think so, so leaders need to um, look in the mirror a little bit. And because we are, we have a blind you know, spot in terms of how we show up, I think being vulnerable and asking people for feedback about how they do show up. So, because you know, we don't always see ourselves as other people experience us. So I think the number one thing uh, for those leaders to do is to say, is to ask them that that question: Who am I, and 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 how do I show up, and 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 am I setting the example of someone that's that uh, walks that that the the floor of of our workplaces as a person that oozes the the idea of providing psychological safety. Um, so I think that's one thing, uh, and then I think sort of sitting back and and um, 
looking at one's team and saying, you know, so uh, is there an element here? Are people comfortable on my team with, with asking questions? Um, to you know, raising a hand and, and challenging things, or even uh, having uh, raising sort of difficult topics, I think that uh, if that never happens on a team, then there's uh, likely an opportunity for growth in terms of improving psychological safety. Uh, if, if people don't know each other well enough, and that may be a thing that a leader says, "Well, of course, my team knows each other," but uh, I think that we can always create opportunities for people to get to know each other better. Um, do we, do we, when, when someone makes a mistake, uh, is it viewed as a, as, as, as a, as, as something that one can learn from, um, you know, in, in our, you know, within the sort of world of occupational health and safety, um, and you look at the sort of the, the, uh, the risk accident pyramid that they talk about, we, we look at things as we either call things near misses or hopefully learning events where someone when something happens, what can we learn from that? So we're not chastising someone for, for, for messing up, that we're actually learning, creating an opportunity where people can learn from that. So if people feel safe um, with sometimes, I mean, depending on the work, you know, the type of business that we're in, but we want to encourage that experimentation. We want to encourage creativity and, you know, no uh, I, I love that one of my sort of favorite quotes and, and authors these days is a, is a woman by the name of Susan Cain. And one of my, one of her favorite quotes is there's no correlation between the person that is the best talker and the person with the best ideas. And so are we able to sort of tap into sometimes those quiet people on the team? Because the chances are that they have the best ideas. We just haven't invited them into the conversation. So I think that, there needs to be a proactive um, effort made from the leaders at whatever level that is within the, within the workplace to encourage conversation, to encourage dialogue, to encourage debate. Um, and, and also, you know, maybe the last thing I'll mention is, is do we give, is, is feedback between people encouraged? Um, and is that part of a team culture or is it only done when, you, you, you know, we actually bring it up. So I think there's a, there's a number of things that leaders can do. They can sit back and just sort of say, what, what does my team look like? And is there a, a dialogue here um, that, that where, where people are coming up with ideas or is there just silence in the room when, when the boss walks in? I, li I like that. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Laurie. No, I was just, as you were talking, Phil, I was thinking about that, um, the work of Amy Edmondson, uh, which I had mentioned to you in, mm. in previous uh, communications um, and the, how she had coined the term psychological safety. Uh, she was a Harvard professor um, back in the 1990s, I guess. And, um, you know, you, you touched upon a couple of the points that she was focusing on with her work. And one was the team effectiveness which, you know, you, you'd explain that beautifully uh, for our listeners, how important psychological safety is working with the teams. And then also about the leaders and how they have to uh, first understand their own emotions and fears before supporting other people. So they have to look kind of about themselves as leaders. Is there any other thoughts you have around those, those couple of points? Because I, I, I really think that's a important aspects of psychological safety to understand it more. Certainly, I think that um, 
and again, I, I go back to my lived experience as a best way of framing my the, the journey that I have continued to be on. Um, the back to that sort of comment about the best boss, worst boss, the, the best boss, um, you know, I, I always view the very one of, one of my one of my best bosses as being that very first person that I had the pleasure and the um, privilege of working with in, back in London. And he may not, he wasn't the most knowledgeable police officer. In fact, I, I would ask him a question. He would often say, well, I, I don't actually know that, Phil, but, but let's go and find out. So he was very um, vulnerable in demonstrating that he didn't know everything. And I think that that encourages people to want to, to, to learn and grow themselves and to realize that we're all learning. We're all on our journey. Whereas I think that, um, you know, sometimes a, a a leader can create a, a, can stifle um, ideas and, and things because they believe, or they've grown up in an environment where they believe they, they're supposed to know the answers to everything and, and they're not. No one has the monopoly on all the, on all the ideas and all the right ideas that there's, yes, there's one that has a responsibility of, you know, in, as a leader, but, but that doesn't come with the, um, uh, you know, with, with all of the answers to every single question. And I think that, so I think one of the things in answer to your question, eventually, uh, is about mm -hmm. that demonstrating that vulnerability mm -hmm. where um, we want to invite people to be curious about themselves and the leader has to go first. That's great. I, I can totally see that connection between the self-reflection of the leader to people being feeling comfortable to come forward by watching what the leader does as well. I, I think so. The, the, we certainly heard in our training programs that people are reluctant sometimes to disclose too much about themselves and to feel uh, um, as, as though, and by doing so, that because um, it's, it's not only about being vulnerable and saying that I don't know everything, but also about you know, sharing some of themselves to, uh, with, with, with the team as well. You know, I can I can tell that in my 35 years of policing, there are some leaders that I had that I, I knew very little about, and there are some that I I knew a lot about and wanted to know more. So I think that uh, and that creates this sort of sort of um, an environment where you you're excited to come to work, where you want to work for this person, where you want to sort of bring your sort of best version of yourself and and. Going back to my high school career, although you know it's somewhat dated now, of course, but 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 I, I still remember this excitement of going to a place where I felt that I would I, I could be myself and 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 uh, and really champion the things that I was learning. Whereas uh, I don't really remember anything about the topics where you know the the, the where I didn't feel safe. Because we have this, um, you know, when we're not safe in our world, we go, we have a very sort of, we, we go back to our sort of amygdala hijack moment where our, that fight or flight response kicks in where we're wanting to protect ourselves. And so we, we shut down all sorts of um, opportunities to see the world differently around us because we're, we're, in, we're in, in, in fear mode uh, all the time. And, um, you know, if you've ever, and it happens in workplaces where you, if, if you, even if you're asked for your opinion, if you are shut down with someone who then either interrupts you before you've actually finished saying anything, or, um, or or minimizes the the idea that you've come up with, that tends to 
you know, create a, a memory for your brain. And uh, the, the brain will say, well, don't do that again. That didn't work out very well. That didn't feel very good. And so we, we don't tend to do that very much more. Um, and so they're the, the, the learned sort of uh, responses to, to dealing with, with uh, those sort of situations. Whereas in, a, in an environment where we're, um, we're invited into the conversation and then acknowledged or validated or given some sort of recognition for the, for the effort made in, or just appreciation, I suppose, for, for the idea, for the voice that you come up with, that tends to encourage more of that. So, um, you know, at a very basic level, for me, it's a, it's a simple, um, I mean, it'll be simple in practice, but, if, you know, sitting here talking to you both, it, it's, it feels very simple to sort of explain, you know, um, invite people into the conversation, be curious about their, you know, because everyone's a, a, an expert in something. Everyone knows something that, I think uh, Bill Nye said, everyone knows something that you don't. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and just be curious about, you know, what that is. And, um, you know, I think that when people are curious about uh, workers, employees, team members, uh, and genuinely interested, not just playing lip service because Phil said you should do it for, for a day, I, I think that that will, that, that starts to create that, that, um, that culture where we, we start to hear those voices. Um, but if you, but if you're starting from zero or maybe in a deficit situation, um, it, you know, that change management, that, that cultural change can take time. I, I love that. And uh, we recently had a guest on um, Hamza Khan uh, the last, last month, and he has a um, sort of an approach of what he calls leave an empty chair. So when you're meeting and you're, you're listening and you're getting feedback and input from from your team members and others within the organization, thinking about who, whose voice don't we hear as well, and it's incorporating that diversity and um, perspective and, and strengthening um, others, looking at things from all different lens, knowing that there's a value being brought, right, from every perspective. Um, so do you have any advice sort of for organizations? It, these are culture changes, um, as you said, they can take time. Um, what kind of journey would you recommend if somebody is starting? Like it can feel a bit overwhelming to go down this pathway of psychological safety. Um, what, what would be one or two first things that you would suggest to an organization or to a leader? Thank you. I think that, um, well, I, I think in terms of what, what the topic we're talking about today, I think being proactive uh, is definitely going to be, it's something I'm sure lots of people that will be listening to this are doing anyway. But, but I also think that if we're not proactive, then we will be doing it reactively for sure. Because when you create an, a, an environment that's, that's unsafe, if people have choices about where they work, uh, they will walk with their feet, they'll vote, they'll vote with their feet in terms of telling you about that. So I think that um, we, we tend to gravitate to and be attracted to and stay in places where we, we feel that we matter. I mean, we go back to sort of a basic Maslow's uh, moment here, but where we feel we make a difference and we feel that, you know, that we are um, um, uh, valued. And that's just not something that you feel without there being evidence of that. It's something that people need to sort of demonstrate to you. Um, so I think that in terms of the, the path, um, just being 
curious about people, making sure that we listen uh, very many more times than we talk, for sure. So I think that uh, most, you know, we, we do this uh, very basic exercise saying, you know, about what respect and disrespect is. And, and we ask people, you know, so, so respect is not really a behavior. If you said to me, Phil, I want you to treat me respectfully, I would say, absolutely. Uh, Lisa and Laurie, I want to do that, but, but what do you want me to do? Like, what is the actual action? And um, when we do that in, in our workshops, the vast majority of people write listening as their number one thing that people can demonstrate respect for. So I think that if a leader is going to uh, start this journey, they have to be uh, listening to, to, uh, to their teams for sure. Um, I think they've, they've also got to model, uh, you know, they're making sure they model, they model the behavior they want to see demonstrated. So I think starting first, so really being curious um, with people, asking lots of open-ended questions, getting to know people. We, we've done work with team, with, with organizations and teams where, you know, the number one thing they wanted to know was basically who other people were in the workplace and, and how their jobs or how their work mattered into the big scheme of things. Because often they, they, uh, they, they view themselves as a, as, a, as a smaller cog in the big machinery of the organization, but don't actually know how their work matters. And I think it's incumbent upon leaders to sort of be able to validate people's day-to-day -day activity in terms of letting them know that they they appreciate and recognize the importance of their work that they're doing in the big scheme of things. I think that we need to always be framing and not only just framing events as learning opportunities when things don't go as planned, but also making sure that we practice that. It's all very good to say that, um, you know, to have a, 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 a almost like a sales pitch to people that that's going to happen, but then not to actually you know, have, have that as a reality. I think that also acknowledging the fact that you as a leader don't know everything. I, I, I want to learn something and I make an effort of trying to learn something every single day. And I think when leaders are um, demonstrating that they are learning, it will also have a, a ripple effect on their team members where they know that hopefully they feel safe learning as well. I think once the leaders decide that they're a fully trained adult and are in a position of, of authority and don't need to learn anymore, that that sort of stifles a whole bunch of learning in, in it, throughout the organization. So I think that I would, I would start with that and, and just making sure, and, and sometimes you've got to be, you know, they say it, you know, it takes 21 days to sort of to, to force yourself to do something on, before it becomes a habit. And, and I think that I, th I think having um, even writing stuff down and making sure that you follow through. So it, it's just not seen as a flavor of the day or something that uh, the boss is doing this month. But I think that, some that it needs to be practiced and also to, to have someone as an accountability there to hold someone to help have the leader be held accountable for, for what, what they're doing. And sometimes when we when we verbalize that to other people, it sort of builds in a, a bit of an accountability uh, device for us. So I, I would suggest those would be good starting points for everything. And of course, you know, today with remote working, uh, it, it sort of impacts culture and the work environments that people are in. And when you think of psychological safety at work are there any aspects unique to remote or hybrid work that you think could be challenging to ensure psychological safety uh, very much so um and and thanks for that question i think that you know when we are there is you know the the adage of out of sight out of mind i think people feel can feel very isolated very very quickly 
um, if if we're not checking in with people on a regular basis. Uh, not, not every, you know, I think when we first started working virtually, and I can remember it uh, like it was yesterday for us, um, the the um, not everyone is as familiar with the technology that allows us to work remotely and uh, as as others. Some people seem to be very comfortable with it. Others, uh, you know, I have I used to have trouble spelling IBM, um, so that's mm-hmm. it was a, it was a challenge for me to begin with for sure. So I think that. You know, making assumptions about le- people's level of comfort working remotely, I think, is a big mistake. Um, but we can make the assumption that, uh, and, 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 you know, when you, when you have human beings around, um, you know, we, we have that sort of energy that goes on with, with the groups that are together. And when we're not working around the groups, then there, there's, a, there's an opportunity there for us to, 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 uh, to feel drained very quickly. I mean, uh, I know that hybrid and, and virtual working has, has benefits in, in other aspects, uh, you know, zero commuting for us and, and you know, being around a, a familiar and more maybe comfortable environment. But I think when, the, um, from, a, from a, a team point of view, we need to make a, a, a real effort to sort of make sure not only we check in with people, but also have ways perhaps of, um, you know, creating a, a team environment, uh, even when we're, when we're working virtually. When we do uh, workshops, we use uh, Google Jamboards and our organization, a, a process called Mural, where we, it's a sort of a collaborative conversation where people can, you know, throw stuff up on a, on a, on a whiteboard essentially, uh, and have, um, good interaction without necessarily even sort of, uh, you know, um, then people knowing you know, who, the, who the source of the ideas are. Having a sort of a buddy system you know, where people get to sort of check in with each other with, with, you know, between people rather than, you know, the big team all the time. I, I think also making sure that people are, are um, not always thinking that every time that we go, you know, live virtually, that it's all about work straight away. And that that time is spent, um, you know, creating that sort of sense of, of relationship and sense of, of connection before work stuff is addressed. And I also think that you know, we've certainly worked with organizations who, who've suffered from a distance where when we just rely upon email communication, you know, I think that there's a lot of, of conversations that are, are fraught with danger if we're just communicating with, via email with them. Um, because sometimes we don't, we're not the best at writing emails. And, and uh, I think that there's a lot of assumptions that can be made when people are just reading text. So I, I think that, um, you know, we, we, we want to have a, a sort of a group, maybe a, a, like a team charter as to what, what, is, what is our agreement as to how we're going to show up? What do people need? Because everyone needs something different, I think. And, and it's, a, it's still, for many people, a, a, a new, a rel- relatively new experience. And I think we've we, we we run a risk of making an assumption that everyone's on the same uh, at the same stage with their level of comfort. And of course, you know, not everyone has uh, days that are the same as the day before. So we want to be cognizant of that as well. Mm-hmm. That's that's awesome. Um, maybe before we wrap up, Phil, I have one more one more question. Um, where do you think the legislation is going around psychological safety? We were talking about that before we started recording, and I think it's important for for our listeners to understand why this is important in our workplaces. Thank you. I, I, was, I was showing before we started. In British Columbia here, we, we were, I think, the fifth Canadian province to create legislation around bullying and harassment. 
and it was the same time in 2013 when when uh, the Canadian Standards Association CSA came out with the psychological safety in the workplace uh, uh, piece that uh, talks about um, it, and CSAs are sort of almost best practices but I think that uh, I think we've still got an opportunity of, of, of seeing that best practice become legislation in the future and one of the things I think that uh, we uh, so I think in, in answer to your question about where do I see the legislation going I see that that framework that was you know, uh, uh, issued nationally uh, 10 years ago, becoming much more of uh, the, the next iteration of our legislation, because there are still organizations where people are, are afraid to speak up, where if there are organizations where people's voices are not heard. And, 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 and you don't have to look very far to have you know, there's, there's lots of places where we've seen incidents and accidents where have happened, where people have known the, the risk that an organization was facing, but didn't, uh, weren't invited into the conversation and, and therefore, you know, problems occurred. And if we just, you know, been curious about their perspective beforehand, um, we could have avoided a lot of, of, of pain and suffering. So I think that that's where the legislation is going to, from my point of view. Awesome. Well, we're thrilled to have you um, speak to us today. It was great, great conversation and look forward to more. Um, so if our listeners want to reach out and learn more about some of the training opportunities, how can they reach you? Well, thank you for that. Uh, I think the simplest thing would be just to, to go on uh, online and uh, punch in Fiore Group Training. So that's F-I-O-R-E Group Training. And um, and we are we'll come up on the top, and we're based in North Vancouver, and happy to take any calls. We we again uh, we we love the work we do, uh, and we really feel that we're making an impact in organizations. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for Thanks, being our Phil. guest. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me here.